Hello and welcome to the St Mungo's podcast. This is episode 37 and this is part two of our interview with Mark Dunn on his experience with depression. Let's just jump right in. Tell me a wee bit about the mindfulness. You teach that now, isn't that right? Yeah. Do you mind mind just kind of summarising what that means and, and for those that have no knowledge of this? So mindfulness is not some kind of... Uh, solely Buddhist trait. It's not some kind of wearing funny robes and, and galloping around Stonehenge. Mindfulness, I believe personally, is a very natural state for you to believe in. It's a point where um, you can uh, pay attention to where you are uh, without any judgment. So I try and equate it to have you ever been in your favorite spot, whether it's a spot on a hill or a spot in a, a park or a spot on a beach, and you have closed your eyes and all the other thoughts of stuff that's going on, whether it's a bill that's got to be paid or an essay that's got to be written or the insurance for your car, all of those go away. And all you're paying attention to in that single moment is a sensation. Now, mindfulness focuses on the breath, but it might be the feeling of sun on your face or back. It might be the feeling of wind on your face. It might be the smell of seaweed. It might be a another sensation. But in that moment, the only thing that you're appreciating is a sensation and other thoughts aren't there. And the emotions drop because you're not having emotion emotional reaction to the other thoughts. So you're not thinking, oh God, I feel under pressure because I haven't got my car insurance done. And that's mindfulness. And and how, sorry, how do you practice that? Is that a certain period of time each day or? or yeah, so um, it's it, it, in the 1960s, it kind of came back from, from uh, Buddhist religions uh, to America and then got taken up by a group of, of people in America. And over time it led to a, a, a medical intervention called mindfulness-based stress reduction and subsequently uh, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. And uh, a couple of groups, one down in Bangor and one in, in um, Oxford, have formed essentially a course to try and teach people how to become mindful. Um, and what it teaches you is to a process of meditation um, where you are able to uh pay attention to where you are and the sensations of your body um, uh, in a single moment and that moment is now but now it's gone and it's now again Um, and with the thoughts that you have because you'll always have thoughts um, that you don't latch onto them you try to have very little reaction to them or emotional uh, linkage to them and let them kind of pass by like clouds in the sky so it's a constant state rather than, sorry, maybe I was picking it up wrong. You know, people do like set periods of meditation every day. So they'll sit down for 10 minutes, 20 minutes and enter that kind of zone. But what you're describing is more just a continuous state. Yeah. And so, so the course teaches you to meditate every day. But what you find through meditating every day is that your overall general mental picture changes so that you do try to become more mindful. Um, uh, Now, 
I, I, I've never met him, but I'd love to meet the Dalai Lama and say, are you mindful all the time? At which point I'm sure he'll say, he'll laugh at me because <laughs> he is and say, no, of course not. Um, it's nothing like what people think. Yeah. But, but by the act of um, meditating every day, um, then actually what you've described, that act of meditation, that process, that um, period in time where you're actively practicing, trying to um, achieve that state, that mindful state, um, is uh, is a concentrated form, but it has its effects into the rest of the time and the rest of your um, uh, daytime and uh, awake life. Um, and I found that really, really helpful for me. I found it really interesting, particularly for ruminative thought. So going back over and over the same thing, which which in general it's not the ruminative thoughts. Well, it is the room to thought that's, that's intrusive, but the thing that's exhausting is actually the emotion that's attached to it. That judgment, I'm not good enough. So, um, so what's your meditation process? T tell us about that for those that aren't as familiar with meditation. So um, when I started doing mindfulness, I, I tended to um, uh, pick a specific time because I wasn't working at the time. Um, and it would uh, usually be in the morning. I would... Um, sit down or kneel down somewhere and, um, uh, and meditate usually with my eyes closed. Um, and effectively you're just adopting a neutral, comfortable position. Um, and then you're just effectively trying to bring your attention to the breathing, to your breath in and out in a particular spot, maybe. So maybe your nostrils or the back of your throat and trying to appreciate that sensation at all points throughout the breathing cycle. And naturally your mind will wander and you'll go, what am I having for breakfast? And then you try and recognize, and that's probably the biggest bit, recognize that your mind has wandered from focusing on the breath and bring it back to the breath. And you just do that over and over again. So people, that's why people call it kind of kettlebells for the mind, because it is almost like a repetitive um, exercise and action. And I would do that for, you know, 20 minutes, half an hour, an hour every day at a certain point in time. And then at smaller bits throughout the day. As I got back to work, I would then work it into my working day rather than at fixed points. Okay, let's looking back on that period of time with working with psychiatric services. It sounds to me that it was quite a, an incredible amount of input. How did it change your perception of psychiatric services? And was there any bit of it that you found the most beneficial, or was it just the cumulative everything? cumulative that was beneficial or I think it was cumulative everything um, we kind of talked about before this about how uh, lucky we are in uh, a high income country with the NHS and I genuinely cannot be and neither can my family be more praiseworthy of the NHS mental health services that we had they were purely outstanding and it was a team approach it wasn't just the consultants. It wasn't just the registrar. It wasn't just the CPNs. It wasn't just the OTs. It was the whole thing. It was everybody, is all of them as a team. The psychologists subsequently, the the handover to the GPs, etc. Um, I I genuinely couldn't think of anything more that they could or should have done for myself or for my family. Um, and they, 
you know, are incredibly supportive to my wife, especially when she was having to put up with somebody who now is not her husband anymore at home or then becomes uh, uh, um, somebody who is delusional and psychotic about her. And she feels really scared. They're incredibly supportive of her too. So did it change my view of them? Absolutely. I... <laughs> I think it's fair to say I had no idea about mental health before I went through this and I had no idea about mental health services and I do now and I I can only applaud what they do um, and see how absolutely essential they are. Um, has it changed my view of them? Absolutely. Because, because if you never really have an idea of truly how much they do and how much they can help, you don't really understand or appreciate them, whereas I do now. And this must have put a quite a bit of strain on your family, even during this recovery phase you've mentioned. I mean, how amazing your wife was. What about your kids? What, what about your family, both your wife and your kids? What sort of an impact did it have on them? How much do you appreciate what they went through and, and how supportive? Yeah. Yeah. So I still, I still think I'm learning uh, more about what my wife did for me and appreciating more what she did. The kids, very fortunately, were very young. They were at an age where they can just about still have vague memories of daddy sitting on a sofa in that kind of funny shirt that is, I've got a kind of thick lumberjack shirt, which is really weird. <laughs> it's definitely not me particularly, um, but sitting on the sofa, really not doing anything. They would come in, give me a kiss. I wouldn't have any reaction and they'd leave. Fortunately for them, like like a lot of kids, they're incredibly resilient. They've just gone, oh, that was that was daddy when he used to sit on the sofa and was ill. And even though they're now 14 and 12, they were just like, yeah, that was daddy when he was depressed. Oh, well, when they've moved on. I think it's left some fairly deep scars for my wife um, about, and I think it took her time, and I think this is fair for her to trust me again. Um, and, and I found that difficult to start with. Um, but absolutely rightly, she was scared of me. And that must be a horrible place. We, we've been going out since we were 18. Um, and then suddenly to be scared of, of your boyfriend, fiance, husband, um, father to your children must have been an awful place to be. So I'm still trying to understand the scars that left her. But I have no doubt that without her support that I wouldn't be back here and healthy. Okay, anything else you'd like to mention about that recovery phase? Anything else that was particularly beneficial? Yeah, I think I think one of the things, and again, my wife refers to this probably more than I do, but I certainly knew it at the time, was the reaction that your other family members and close friends have. Um, and for a lot of them, this is an unusual circumstance and they act in different ways. Again, it's not out of badness. It's mostly out of... Um, them trying to do their best in very difficult circumstances. And it's really funny, even now, some got it just spot on. Some understood exactly what my wife's needs were, would be able to say, what can I do? Let's just tell you what, we'll just take the kids and you just get some time away for half an hour. Mark's being looked after the CPN and they knew exactly what to do. And others hadn't got Scooby. <laughs> they had no idea how to react, how to talk to Nikki, how to support her. And again, it's not out of badness. It's not malice. It's just about some people intuitively are good and some people aren't. I don't think it's something you can necessarily teach either. Um, but it is very unusual. Um, and 
some people have their place at different points in your recovery. I do certainly remember that um, as a very uh, close colleague of mine who said all of the right things to me um, when he texted me as I was getting better, just single little texts every couple of weeks or something and just said absolutely the right things. And Neil, you'll know who you are, but thank you. Um, uh, it, it's funny. It, it's just, it's something you can't explain. Not everybody can do it. And I don't think you can teach it, but some people just know what you or your family needs. And, and it might be an individual thing, as in there isn't a set thing that someone could have texted you, but that person, Neil, knew you, knew what you needed. Um, so, yeah, that's super important, isn't it? Um, okay, well, do you mind if we kind of start to look at your return to work? Is that okay? So, so you kind of mentioned before that you were keen to get back to work before others thought you were you were ready. But when did you start to become ready? What, what was happening when you realised, okay, it's time? So, probably for at least a few months beforehand, um, I seemed to be, from my point of view, mentally stable. Um, I was on regular medications. I was um, uh, doing regular CBT and mindfulness. Um, I was still seeing CPNs and, and uh, OTs and psychologists. Um, but I kind of felt ready to work. I even kind of, just to see how my mind would cope with bits of stress, I gave myself a kind of a, a quite a big DIY project at home to manage with builders and things like that. So if anybody's ever dealt with builders and plumbers and all that kind of stuff. And I, I got through that and we got a nice kind of extension at our house and stuff. Um, but at that point, people were saying, just hold on, I think you just just get used to life um, and I was kind of itching to get back to work and, and with hindsight they were right and I was wrong um, it, it was very coordinated between consultant psychiatrists between consultants in occupational health um, and between my um, consultants back in my workplace um, and uh, basically they adopted it in a kind of twofold the first one was um, fitness to work and then the second one was fitness to practice and there were two very different things so after I'd been off for over a year, we started along this process with the consultant in occupational health saying, okay, so the next stage is let's get you reintroduced to your workplace. And over a period again of months, I basically would just go in. So the first time was literally just to enter the building again and just say hello to colleagues who hadn't seen me. And that's quite a big step actually for people when you've been off for a year, everybody knows you've been away. Um, and uh, even if people... Uh, themselves didn't think there was a stigma with mental health. I potentially still thought there was a stigma with mental health, even at that stage. Um, and um, uh, and just saying hello, you get over that stage and then gradually you stay there for a couple of hours and then you stay there for half a day and then you stay there for a day and you're in a completely supernumerary capacity. You do no clinical work. You might have a look at the odd results or letters. You might attend the odd meeting, but that was very slow. And then there was the fitness to practice, which was gradually to get you back into supervised work. So again, you're directly supervised. You start doing shop floor work and that builds up over time. The helicopter work, I needed to get myself reestablished in, um, uh, uh, ICU and emergency medicine first before they would even contemplate the helicopter stuff because of my, um, uh, lack of immediate consultant support, uh, I think, but also because of the other variety of stress and strains and also the fact that occupational health really, no offence to them, didn't have much of an idea of what helicopter emergency medicine was. Um, 
during that period in time of coming back to clinical work, I made the decision to uh, give up emergency medicine. And for me, that was really difficult. It had been my life, literally, for, for a decade or so. And um, But what I, I did appreciate was trying to do emergency medicine and on-call rotor for that, ICU medicine and on-call rotor for that, and HEMS with on-call rotor for that was not going to be healthy for me. So I made a very difficult decision to give up emergency medicine. Um, and I do regret some of it. Um, uh, I don't probably regret getting bashed over the head about four-hour targets and, and so on. But the camaraderie, there is nothing like the camaraderie of staff in an emergency department. Nowhere. Ever met. If you don't mind me being a wee bit more probing, why did you choose to give up it and not one of the other two? It's a very good question. So I realised that um, helicopter work would always be the add-on if I wanted to, and that might not have worked. So at the time, it was going back to a single clinical hospital specialty. So why did I pick ICU? I think I've always been a bit more of a obsessive compulsive kind of control freaky person. And the reason I dual trained in ICU was I really missed the slightly longer term um, uh, uh, picture about patients. Maybe in a kind of, uh, I've kind of tried to psychoanalyze myself. Maybe it's that um, reward system, the kind of Pavlovian thing of actually getting within the four hour target. Unfortunately, a lot of the time, the treatments you give, you don't get to see the results of. So you don't get to see the fruits of your labor, as it were, even though we know it's incredibly important in that patient's care pathway. But in ICU, you often do. You get to see them from what you've done get better. So there's that kind of reward back to yourself, that kind of serotonergic release that you get of doing something and you see the person get better. So that was one reason. Um, the second reason was that actually when I got appointed to the health board, my main departmental employer, because they couldn't quite understand at that time when I got employed that you could have two departments. My main employer was ICU. So I probably felt a bit more attached to ICU. And before I went off, uh, more of my job plan was ICU than ED. I don't have any other better rationale than that. Okay, what what was the reaction of your colleagues? Was it universally accepting, or was there some? You know what? What? what no, I think um, my colleagues, both in in ICU, but also emergency medicine, because obviously went back down there to, to to talk to them about coming back, and in 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 my Hems work. Um, was universally accepting uh, you know genuinely there was nothing but goodwill and love from all of them to see me back I think one of the interesting bits I think one of the questions on their lips a lot of the time was how the hell did that happen and what, how, how did we miss it how did we how miss did... it so I think there was two emotions even if I'm speaking for other people the first one was um, guilt on their part that they had not helped me in some way and the second one was relief, but also anxiety that it could be them. Um, and I think that's one, very natural to feel that way. But two, it's also not just natural, but it's normal. It's normal to see that what's happened to me and think, oh, my word. But then to come to terms with it and then to ask me to listen to what I've got to say and to try and 
learn a little bit from it. And that kind of comes back around to why I'm talking to you. I've, I've now talked a number of times at different um, events, conferences, international conferences about my experience. And a lot of the time people kind of come up to me afterwards and go, oh, that was amazingly brave and so on. And I don't think it's brave. What it does teach me as well, is it some catharsis for me? I'm not sure. But what it does teach me is it actually is I am now fully understanding and I've come to terms with the fact that I had a severe mental illness, that I had severe depression. It's not a fault thing. It's not a guilt thing, which is what I felt a lot of the time. How could I let this happen to me? Me, it must be something to do with me. It must be something I've done, that blame game of, okay, I might have been able to do little bits about it, but realistically, it's not my fault. And and it's why I now know and feel happy that I can talk openly about it because it was just something that happened. It wasn't me that did something to myself to make it happen. Do you fear it could happen again? Or do you f- do you believe that you've learned enough about it plus coping strategies, plus modifying your life and all? Do you think you've done enough to prevent it happening again? So, brilliant question. Um, and we'll go on to, to where I am at the moment. So, at the moment, I'm in a very good place. As you said, I'm very happy back in my ICU HEMS work. Um, I still take regular antidepressants and I'll probably never come off them as a kind of interesting point about for me if I'd had recurrent episodes and we probably identified with hindsight about three or four episodes where I was probably clinically depressed over my preceding years dating back to when I was 18 um, prior to me being off. Um, But we don't know if it'll happen again. So at the moment, because the antidepressants aren't causing me any side effects, um, then uh, I'm kind of happy to take them and take them forevermore because I'd prefer not to go through what I went through again. But I, I know myself, I can't, pre- I can't absolutely 100% prevent it ever happening again. Um, am I fearful of that? I'm fearful of that in the same way that I'm fearful of, I don't know, a plane going down, climate change. If it happens, it happens. I'll deal with it then. Am I better equipped to notice it happening again? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And you're clearly doing a lot of stuff that would hopefully prevent or mitigate it happening again, like your mindfulness, your meditation, your... And, and I'm sure... Well, well, it's kind of what I was going to come on to next. My next question is, what, what are the positives from this experience? Lots of negatives. But what are the positives both for you... Like, what do you take out of this experience? How has it changed your view on life, your family, everything? And then how has it also positively influenced your work and your colleagues and your teamwork and all of that? So how has it changed my 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 work, my life, my view and everything, I think is what you said. And you're right, it does. It changes absolutely that. I think the first one is that view of mental health. I really didn't appreciate mental health issues before this and that destigmatization is so important. The fact that, um, uh, I think the statistics are that if, if you're a doctor, at some point, one fifth of us will experience a significant mental health episode during our lives. One fifth, right? So that means of all of the people that we know as doctors, and we tend to know more than five, there's going to be a number of us that will have a significant mental health issue. So effectively, this is almost normal. 
I say almost normal. Um, and we need to destigmatize it. It is not destigmatized currently by any means. Everybody says, oh yeah, we're doing all this, and we're doing all this mental health this week. It's still got a massive stigma, even now. Um, and I think talking about this stuff and trying to make uh, make it um, less scary, less hidden away behind cupboard doors. Remember what I said to you about my family finding out that I literally come from the Munsters. Um, uh, you know, why was that all hidden from me? Because people felt that was the thing to do. No, the thing to do from my point of view is talk about it as much as possible. So I think destigmatization. The other thing is how's it, how's it affected everybody that's moved forward in terms of a positive way. Um, I do try and look at it. I'm generally an optimist. I'm, I'm very much a glass half full person. And I look at it now that I know my body, my emotions, my thoughts better than I ever have done before. I certainly know when things aren't right. I'm, I think, a much more balanced, uh, an emotionally balanced individual and probably an emotionally sensitive individual more. And I talk, I now talk about my feelings, my emotions um, uh, and recognizing other people when actually for them it might be beneficial for them to talk and do that are you really okay or when they go yeah i'm fine go how you doing how you really doing um has it impacted on my family and and relationship with my wife absolutely we know each other far better now than we ever did before. And I said, we met at 18. So we were kind of that classic medical school couple going out from first year. Um, and it has definitely strengthened. It's it's challenged the relationship from us. And we've had to go through marriage counseling and things like that, but it's definitely strengthened the relationship between us. Um, uh, and for my friends, I think it's, it's taught me that, Friendship means lots of different things. Um, but during times of crisis, during times of stress, you really get to know who your real close friends are. Um, and that's been very helpful for me and very, very touching for myself and my family of we now really know who we can count on. With regards to colleagues at work, I think things like this, I think uh, even me just... Um, sitting down with a supervisee, so I'm an educational supervisor. And if they start wanting to open up about themselves, I will tell them about me to try and normalize, as it were, what they're feeling at the time. Because again, when you start feeling under stress, when you start getting ill, you isolate yourself. It's about understanding that you're not alone people have been through it before um, and just opening up that little chink that they can then start to speak um, and what I'm trying to do now going into the future is is to try and encourage people as much as I possibly can to uh, have parts of learning about what I have taken away from it uh, such as the love for life. And I mean life, I don't mean work. Um, that I have now. Um, and I do mindfulness sessions at work. I go away and teach on retreats. Um, 
but I also try and say to people, are you enjoying work, life at the moment? And if they're not, have a chat to them about why not and how we can make that better. Because that's what it is. I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm uh, atheist, but, you know, I, I believe this is our life on this planet. And you should try as much as you can to enjoy it without hurting other people. So yes, by all, by all means, recycle, try and pay attention to climate change, try and not worry too much about the fascist political leaders around the world that could press a button and end it all in one small... <laughs> Let's small, not think about that. <laughs> ...small incident. But actually to enjoy the time that you've got here, that carpe diem, seize the day thing. Um, and I think sometimes people do get so caught up in, in the modern world of that hamster wheel of driving forward and forward and forward that they just need to sometimes just stop and say, what do I enjoy? So if you don't mind me asking, you, you, you seem to be very positive about life now. You seem to be in a really good place. Would that have happened without that experience? Do you regret the negative experience, the 18 months of, I mean, we can only imagine, we've heard a snippet of what you went through, but we can't imagine what it was like. Or do you look back on it as something that has actually had a positive in the long term? How, how, how do you look back on that situation? Then? Yeah, it's a good question, isn't it? Regret. Um, I don't regret it. Um, it. You're right. It was the worst experience of my life. It was probably the worst experience of my wife's life. Um, and we don't know what I'd be like if I hadn't have gone through it, but I don't regret it. Uh, and I don't regret it because I am a different person. I think I'm a better person for it now. Um, and I think I'm a stronger person for it. Um, stronger in the fact that I think I'm probably more resilient now, better in the fact that I think although I was stable beforehand I think I was emotionally stable because I actually didn't really understand emotions which is why I kind of refer to myself as being Vulcan um, but now I kind of understand the way in which thoughts and emotions and actions are part and parcel of the same thing and influence how you feel and react all the time um, and so no I don't regret it I do wish it hadn't happened sort of but maybe I wouldn't be the same person now. So there's probably a lot of us, I don't know if I'm included in this, um, who are drifting through life in a kind of mid-level of mood, if that makes sense. So we're not, we're not super happy like you are now, perhaps. We're not super depressed as you were at that really dark stage, but we, we could linger in this state for a long time, maybe forever. Now, we wouldn't want to prescribe everyone 18 months of what you went through to get to the state that you're now in. So I guess the challenge now is helping people like us drifting along to try to reach the level that you're in now, but through a different kind of means. Does that make sense? It does. So how do we do that? Like, it may not be possible, but what, what I'm trying to say is what what is now your advice to the listeners, both individually and maybe as teams and groups, departments, to kind of help us all get to a kind of better place, if that makes sense. Yeah, so uh, thank you for calling me super happy. Um, <laughs> uh, 
I can't change people's personalities. Your personality is what it is, I think, and it's a mixture of nurture and nature. Um, and I, before this, was an optimistic, generally quite happy and gregarious person anyway. So I'm not going to change your personality, but how do you help people from where they are at the moment? So clearly I'm going to be biased. I'm a mindfulness instructor and I do read up a lot about the science of it. Um, and I'm not going to go on about mindfulness. Uh, maybe we can talk about that other times. But but I do truly believe that there is something about mindfulness that seems to have an effect that um, at the moment is relatively unexplainable by modern science, although functional MRI is trying to figure out ways that uh, maybe it is working in terms of neuroplasticity. Um, but I think what I would probably try and say for everybody, the first one is figure out what you enjoy. If life isn't to enjoy and life is just to endure, that's a sad place to be. So find out what you enjoy and do it. If you feel that you're in a position where you are not enjoying it, then change even small things to try and make your life more enjoyable. And you might feel you're trapped, but if you are, speak to somebody else because they will almost certainly have a different perspective than your one. We always talk about reality and say, for example, you've had a chat with a family or something in the ED and when they come back, they tell you what you told them. And, and you're like, I didn't tell them that. Um, but what they've perceived that you've said, that's their reality. So for those of you out there that are saying, I'm just drifting along, I'm kind of enduring life, not enjoying it. This is how I feel. That is your reality. But it's your perception of the reality. Somebody else's perception may be very different and getting their opinion on perception, if you trust them, you listen to them and are prepared to do something about it. And that's probably really helpful and healthy. That's absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much. Um, probably my last question, just, just from a, a, a departmental perspective um, did you change anything in your own department would you recommend anything to to departmental leads or senior people listening at the moment what 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 could we do differently to make work a more enjoyable place ensure we're looking after each other's mental health just making sure we're looking out for for people who may be experiencing difficulty what what would you suggest so yeah i think there are definitely things we can do and We've got to remember that humans are social animals. We're designed to be together in groups. We are not designed to be alone. And therefore isolating and isolation of yourself is not a good thing, I think, psychologically. We're starting to see well-being programs at work and I can only encourage them whether they are to do with um, uh, short periods in time where people talk about meditation, whether it's about uh, away days where you get away as a group and do a team building exercise or not even a team building exercise. It doesn't have to doesn't have to matter what it is going to the pub um, uh, and that awareness of well-being at work so that people are and have the mental capacity space bandwidth to pick up when people are not well or are getting not well um, 
and to potentially have leads in those positions, leads or advisors or mentors. I truly believe that things are changing, going back to mentoring models, health and wellbeing programs at work, more open talking about mental health issues, understanding and actually being very vocal about the stresses and strains that are on uh, healthcare workers is really important. And the good bit is that since I've come back to work, what, I think seven years ago now, eight years ago, um, I'm starting to see all of that happen. And that's only good for people. Um, so I think keep doing what we're doing um, is the answer. Um, and as I said, enjoy life. Mark Dunn, thank you so much for being so open, so brave, even though you don't feel you're brave. But we, we feel it's brave of you to, to speak about it, and we really, really appreciate it. It, it. it kind of feels pointless even asking you this. We should, probably should have ended it there, but I tend to always finish these conversations with one final question. Is that okay? And it doesn't have to be about mental health, but it can be if, if you want it to be. But I always ask at the end, if you could go back in a time machine to meet your junior self exiting uh, medical school about to start their career what is a single piece of advice that you would give that junior you just at the you know the onset of their career <laughs> so i've um i think i left this as the final slide um uh when i talked about this a few years ago at a conference um and there were two things the first one is don't take everything so seriously and the second one is aim for excellence but learn to accept good enough. Mark Dunn, that's a good place to end. Thank you very, very much. Cheers. So a huge thank you to Mark for his openness, his honesty, his bravery, talking about a very, very difficult time in his life. And I think there's value to hearing about the experiences of others. I think we all have our own brushes with anxiety and depression throughout our lives and throughout our careers. I know I've certainly had my own experiences. Nothing as deep or as dark as what Mark experienced. But I think there's value to know that you're not alone. There are others that have experienced them. There are others that you can speak to for advice and support. So I hope this has been of some value to you, the listener. Uh, And please share it with anyone that you think may benefit from it. So if you like this type of podcast, I do similar interviews with world-renowned experts in healthcare education, such as Rich Levitan, Peter Brindley, Kathleen Volman, and I interview them and find out about them as individuals, um, you know, where they grew up and their hopes and challenges, loves, desires, what they like, dislike, um, just more of an Oprah Winfrey-style uh, interview, and they're very revealing and very informative, so check that out, and I'll put the link to that in the show notes. So thank you very much again to Mark. Thank you very, very much again to you guys for listening. Please check out stmungos-ed.com for more incredible resources for your enjoyment. I hope you're all enjoying the new medical year and I hope uh, your new staff are all settling in well. Until next time, take care.